Listen to the words of Isaiah. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. The prophecy of Isaiah has the curtain fall on the scroll with that finale. Nothing will be left. The last hope of Judah seems to now go by the wayside. Hezekiah, one of the best kings that Judah ever had, has fallen into sin in his glory in himself and in his pride, in his arrogance, has shown all the wealth of Judah to the Babylonian envoys who have come to him and are surprised that God has granted him extra life. Isaiah had come to him and said, your days are numbered, put your affairs in order. Hezekiah turned his prayers fervently to God. And God had extended his life. And Hezekiah, rather than bringing glory to God through that, turned around and showed Babylon, look at all my wealth, look at all my might, look at my rule, look at my kingdom. And so Isaiah's final words now fall. It's all going to Babylon. Nothing will be left. The sin of the nation has brought this disaster. Their rebellion toward God has caused the coming devastation. Their lack of faith has led to this ruin. If we were to be able to summarize the first 39 chapters that we have traversed in Isaiah, we would probably be able to summarize it with your lack of faith has caused your ruin. Their lack of faith over and over again as the prophets are crying out to the people, will you trust God? Stop trusting in yourselves. Stop trusting in your might. Stop trusting in foreign power. Stop trusting in the nations. And put your trust in God alone. And so sin has ruined everything. Fellowship with God is now severed. God is no longer with His people. In fact, the book of Lamentations, written by the prophet Jeremiah as he wails for the fall of Jerusalem, four times in the first chapter will say, there is no comfort for my people. Lamentations 1, verse 2, verse 9, verse 17, verse 21. No comfort for my people. There is no comfort for my people. And I think that sets the tone of where we stand now in the book of Isaiah. There's nothing the people can do for their sinful condition. Even the one who is declared righteous by by the chronicler and of the writer of Kings has now fallen into sin. There is no more hope. And so now the question remains, what will God do? What is God going to do with these people who have rebelled against him? What is he going to do with a nation that is steeped in their sins and is deserving of wrath? What is God going to say now, now that the curtain falls on the nation and the the decree is given, everything is going to Babylon, there shall be nothing left. That's where we pick up in chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, if you have your Bibles there, we'll read from verse 1 to verse 11. That's page 599 in the pew Bibles there in front of you. Isaiah chapter 40. 
Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places as a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says cry and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald the good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules before him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense comes with him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will gather them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. What a beginning now. As we begin to wonder, what is God going to do with the people? And now judgment falls. The people are guaranteed to go into their captivity, into Babylonian slavery. The imagery of what the other prophets would describe, it will be the fall of the city, the fall of the nation, the destruction of the temple. God no longer with his people. But now begins the words of hope. From chapter 40 to the end of this book is really perhaps the most exciting part of Isaiah's prophecy. As he now begins to declare, here is what you will look forward to. Though your judgment is in its immediate, in your front of your eyes, you have hope. And the beginning words are amazing. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And perhaps more important than the words of comfort is notice what God says in that first verse. He says, comfort to who? My people, says your God. God begins with ownership of these people who are in sin. The very people that God said you are going to your destruction and judgment because of your rebellion. He says, say these words. It is comfort, comfort to my people, says your God. And I want you to recognize that is covenantal language that God uses. We see that throughout the scriptures. You see it used like in Exodus 6 and Genesis 17. I will be your God and you will be my people. He begins with covenant language and says, I am your God. You are my people and I am declaring comfort to you. God is going to act. 
Though they deserve wrath because of their rebellion and their sin, God says, it is not the end of everything. It is deserved of the people to go to the Babylonian captivity and never return. God could easily say, you have broken your end of the covenant. I made a covenant with you at Sinai that you would obey all of my words. In Exodus 24, those very people said, we will do all that is written in the book. And Moses sprinkled blood on that covenant and said, that's right. It is to you and to your children to do all that is written. And they did not do it. And God could have just said, you know what? You didn't keep your end of the deal. You didn't obey the covenant like you said you would. And therefore, that is all. But God says, I will act. Hear words of comfort to my people. In fact, verse 2, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Literally in that Hebrew, speak to the heart. It's time for them to hear something. Take this to heart. Hear these tender words that are coming from God. And notice the three things that he says. Number one, the time of their service is fulfilled. Basically, number one, the time of your punishment is ended. There is going to be a time to the people, to to Judah, to the remnant, that the time of your punishment will be completed. Notice the second statement in verse two, that her iniquity is pardoned, that God is going to come and he is going to forgive their sins, even though they are in rebellion, Even though they do not deserve it based upon their actions, God is going to come and forgive and pardon sins. Number three, at the end of verse two, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Do not read that to mean that what God did was punish them double for their sins. That doesn't fit comfort, comfort my people. I whacked you twice as hard as I should have whacked you. That's not the idea. Most of the scholars see this as idiomatic language. The doubling is a matching. For every sin, God has matched it with grace. With every sin, God has matched it with forgiveness. And so your sins have been doubled. They have been pardoned. That God has met them. So she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. It seems to be a picture of matching. It is an amazing declaration then. Because what God begins now in chapter 40 is an amazing theme. And I hope it will be one of the main takeaways you will take to your heart tonight. And as we study through the rest of Isaiah over the next however long it takes to get there. God's purpose is not our destruction, but our redemption. And that might resonate with some of you more than others. For me, that resonates very strongly. Because I feel like I had a tendency to picture God as, all right, you take a misstep. God is there on the spot and he's ready to barbecue you if you'd make any wrong false step. 
That God is standing there as a wrathful God, ready to punish at a moment's notice, ready to strike down at any instant. And that is not the picture, because if that were the picture, then this would be chapter 39 and set it aside. Thus ends the prophecy. But the picture is quite the opposite. God does not set his heart on their destruction. Though they fail God and break the covenant, God says, comfort. I'm here for your redemption. I've come to save. Your iniquity is pardoned. Your sins are matched by God. He will now deal with them so that you can enter into relationship with him. In fact, what you're going to see tonight is three heralds that are given here from verse 3 to verse 11. Three declarations that are made. And these declarations are really, in essence, the gospel. In fact, when we get to the third declaration, you might have caught it in verse 9. He says it's the herald of good news. Here is the gospel message in Isaiah. Isaiah says one day the good news, the gospel is going to come. Here it is in three cries. First one from verses 3 through 5. Verse 3. Here's a voice that cries out and here's its message. In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. To sum this up, this is a statement God is coming. This was a very common declaration when a king was going to visit a region or a city. A herald would go before that king and cry out to the inhabitants of the city, get the road ready. The king is coming. Get the road prepared. Get the obstacles out of the way. Get the road smooth because the king is going to arrive. You better get everything in order. And that's the very same message that is being given here. There's the herald going before the king. And it is the Lord that is coming. And the herald is saying, get the road ready. Prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the highway because God is going to come. Get ready. The king is going to come. Beautiful message of this cry. And notice what the cry is. In the wilderness, in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. And consider the significance of that. Isaiah chapter 35. Remember how Judah was pictured. Isaiah 35 verse 1 begins. You are in the wilderness. You are the desert. God has separated himself from you because of your sins. The blessings are dried up. The land is dried up. Blessings gone. You've broken fellowship with God. It is a picture of wilderness then. That's the imagery that God wants to use. And so what God is doing here through Isaiah is saying, God is going to come. And the people are severed from God. The blessings have stopped. They're off into captivity even when they come back as a remnant. Remember that God has not shown himself in his glory. He's not in that temple. Even when they rebuild it in 515 BC, God does not put his presence there. You are separated from God. But here is the picture that one day God is going to come though they're separated, though they are wilderness. 
God is going to come and bless them, though they're deserving of condemnation. And so the cry is made as verse 4 goes on to use every valley be lifted up, every mountain be made low, uneven ground needs to be made smooth, the rough places be made a plain. It is a call for the removal of any obstacle. And what Isaiah is doing is not merely saying, okay, go get your road ready, Jerusalem. Obviously not. He's calling for the people to get their hearts ready because God is going to come back. I'm sending you to Babylon. Nothing will be left is how chapter 39 ended. But comfort to my people. God is going to come again. And when he comes, you better have the road ready in your heart. You better have every obstacle removed because God is coming to forgive your sins, to comfort you, to be able to pay double for what you've done. God is coming to forgive. And so prepare your hearts, prepare the road, get ready because God is coming. Does that message sound familiar? Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter three. Matthew chapter three. Verse one. Matthew 3, verse 1. In those days, John the baptizer came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now notice what Matthew does. For this is he, for this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This is the very message that John the baptizer gave. And what the John the baptizer is telling them, what's his message? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Get your heart ready. Get prepared because the Lord is going to come. And so this is exactly what John now runs around saying. When Isaiah said the Lord is coming, what did that mean for the people to do? Get your heart right. Repent. The king is coming and the king is coming to establish his kingdom. And so you need to get ready because here he comes. And so it's a beautiful beginning here. And notice as he does this back in verse two, he spoke of it all in the past tense. Did you notice that the warfare has ended? The iniquity is pardoned. She's already received all this. And remember, none of this has happened yet. They haven't gone to Babylon yet and they haven't come out of Babylon yet. It's what we call kind of the prophetic perfect. It's stated in the past tense because it is certainly going to happen. There is no doubt that God is going to accomplish his plan. The arrival of God will come. And notice verse five. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh will see it. The glory of the Lord will be revealed this is an amazing picture on so many levels. I could, I could really do a whole other lesson right here, but I won't. But just to give it to you quickly, some ideas. Remember what happened in Ezekiel chapter 9 and 10 and 11. We referred to it a little bit this morning. We talked about how God left his people because of their sins. But do you remember the language that's used? The glory of the Lord left. 
In each of those instances, in Ezekiel 9, 10, and 11, as you are tracing the movement of God and the throne moving away, it's describing the words are the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord has left. He separated himself from you. He's no longer with you. You are now on your own. And that's what makes John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18 so amazing. Because now you have in John chapter 1, the arrival of Jesus, and you listen to these glorious words The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. That's not idle words. That's Isaiah words. The glory of the Lord is going to come back. And Jesus is that king who comes to forgive sins and comes and you see the glory of God in Christ himself. And so Isaiah gives an amazing image. One day the king is going to come and you need to be ready with your heart. You need to be prepared because Christ will come and he's going to forgive sins. And the glory of the Lord is going to be revealed for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And that end of verse five seems to be the trigger to the second herald in verse six. Second voice now. Verse six, a voice says cry. And I love it. The voice then says, what shall I cry? Here's the message. All flesh is grass. Well, we need to hear that. We need to all do a whole nother lesson just on that line right there. All flesh is grass. What's he mean? Everything on earth, all created things are temporary. They are not permanent. There's only one thing that's permanent. And that's what he says there in verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. There is only one thing that has reliability, the word of God. We need to hear that we are not permanent. We are a vapor. We are but a breath. And he reminds them of that. But I want you to consider that he's going even amazingly deeper here. Look again at verse 6. All flesh is grass. And almost every translation that you probably have, except for a couple of them, unless you have one of these other ones, says all of its beauty or splendor or something like that. All of its beauty is like the flower of the field. But you might have a footnote next to there to tell you something rather interesting. If you've done any kind of little Hebrew word word work, and I've done very little, but this one is one that pops off the page. This word has said, you might know that one. Because God speaks, he uses that word in the Old Testament, he's speaking of his steadfast love. Is a word that speaks of faithfulness and loyalty. And that is the essence of what's happening here. I think the NIV is right by reading this, that all faithfulness, all its faithfulness is like the flower of the field. The New Revised Standard uses constancy or uh, net uses the promises. Notice what the picture is. It's not saying we're all like grass and our beauty is going to fade away. That's not really the idea. The contrast is extraordinarily powerful. He's saying all humans are unreliable, faithless, lack devotion, lack loyalty, lack that reliability. That's what he's saying. There is only one thing. And think about how that fits with Isaiah. 
Nothing has been reliable. Even Hezekiah, when you start reading Hezekiah, you think, well, this might be our man. He will be devoted to God and he will be faithful and he will be loyal, right? He's not. His faith fails. Every single person in Scripture, their faith fails. They sin and they are not devoted and loyal to him. And that's the contrast that's being made is we fail. We lack loyalty. We lack that necessary faithfulness. But God is faithful. The word of the Lord, our God, stands forever. We are unfaithful. He is faithful. When he says it, it is accomplished. When he makes a promise, it must happen. We make promises. What do we do? Well, you better swear in a Bible. Well, do you take an oath? Yeah, were your fingers crossed? Did you pinky swear? You know, we've got to do all kinds of things to try to enforce a bond with somebody because we don't trust them. Because all humanity is not loyal and faithful to their word. They don't do what they say. They are not faithful to God, not, not even to themselves. But God is. God is. And think about how Peter worked that when the Apostle Peter quoted that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23 to 25, because he writes there about their suffering. And he says, your hope is grounded not on us. We're like grass. Flesh fades away. Our hope is grounded on God. Because when he says something, it happens. And think about how chapter 1 of 1 Peter began. You have an inheritance. You have a hope that is reserved for you in heaven, is how Peter begins that very letter. And that is something we can rely on. And that's what this message is to these who are being taken away. Chapter 39 says, everything's going to be taken away to Babylon, you will go. But God says, you can put your hope in something. I promise that there is comfort to my people. That the king will come and you will see his glory and your sins will be pardoned. And because God said it, it must happen. He is not like us where he do not keep our words or is unfaithful to his promises. The word of our God will stand forever. And so that is the contrast from verse six to verse eight. Verse six, our words fade away. Our faithfulness vanishes in an instant, but God's faithfulness does not. He is faithful. He is dependable. He does not let us down. I submit to you, friends, that there is only one person you should put all your hope and trust in. And it's not your friends and it's not your family and it's not anybody in this room. There is only one dependable person And that's God. He does not break his word. He does what he says. There should be no concern for us in terms of salvation on the day of judgment. Because God says, I have set my hope on your redemption, not on your destruction. That's why he was sending Christ. And now we would wonder, well, is it going to be okay when we get there? Yes, it will, because God has sent Christ and through him we have forgiveness and that 
cannot be doubted. God keeps his word and he is faithful to those promises. And that's what he tells them. This is why you can have comfort Judah, because God keeps his word. Number third one, verse nine, the third herald. Verse nine, and notice the herald is actually a call to Zion to cry out the good news. This is the good news. He says to Zion, get up on a high mountain and herald the good news. Lift your voice with strength. And what was that? Yell. Yell it out. The good news has arrived. What are they supposed to yell? Well, notice it in verse 9. Say to the cities of Judah. What are they supposed to yell? See your God. You're going to see God. You're going to see his glory is what he promised. And he says, now get up on the mountains and tell everybody this is the good news. Behold your God. And now notice the picture of how God comes. Verse 10, behold, the Lord God comes with might. First picture. You're going to see God. God is coming. He's coming with power. Notice the second picture in verse 10. Behold, his reward is with him. His recompense goes before him. You're going to see his might. See the Lord coming with power and might. See him coming with reward and recompense. And verse 11 is just amazing. Here he comes. Here comes the powerful king. A power with might and strength. He describes it with his arm going before. Here is the one, as we just saw this morning, conquering the enemies. Get the road ready. Here comes the king. How is he going to come? Verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. The great, powerful God with strength in his hand, who can wipe out the enemies all before him, says, here's how I'm going to come. I'm coming as a shepherd. And notice this imagery. Verse 11. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. He comes to a people of rebellion and sinfulness. when, with all the might and power and strength that God has, he walks in as a shepherd and gathers his sheep to him. So it makes John, so amazing. We've been studying in John, John chapter 10, verse 14. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me. And I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus is the shepherd that's being portrayed here. God is going to come in in strength and might. And rather than destroying people for rebellion, he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to gather my people in. I'm going to bring them to me. Comfort, comfort to my people, says your God. I will be your God. You can be my people. I will forgive your iniquities. Prepare your hearts. Get ready because the king is coming and he is going to come like a shepherd. He is going to bring people to him. The word of God has spoken. It cannot be broken. It stands forever. Though we are unfaithful, God is faithful to that promise. 
And that's then how this all comes together with this beginning section. I submit to you that our spiritual comfort cannot exist. It just cannot exist until we have a true appreciation of the character of God. To be able to see what God desires of his people, that it is not his desire for judgment. It is not his desire for wrath. That's not what he wants to do. He is making every way possible for that to be avoided. We must see his tender care and comfort to his people. A picture of him not in strength and might, but as a shepherd. It's one of the beautiful things of Revelation, right? Here is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And what do we see? Do we see him as a lion devouring everybody in the in the space? No. Behold, I looked and there was a lamb as if it was slain. He comes gently calling to his people to come to him. I believe it goes along with what the Apostle Paul would say in this great statement of praise as he opens that letter to the Corinthians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. He is the place of comfort. He is the place of healing to be able to take our sins, to remove them far from us. To be able for us as a rebellious people to come to him and find forgiveness of sins. And that's why verses 9 through 11 are the cry. Tell the world about the comfort that is found in God alone. Tell the world about what God has done. That he has come and he has used his strength and might and reward to save to save his people and to gather them to him. We are faithless and we are unreliable, but God is faithful. God is reliable and he has promised to carry us to his bosom and to gently lead us. I hope that will cause us to then do one important thing. The very thing that this cry was all about. It is a call for us to prepare our heart For the Lord to remove every spiritual obstacle to get out of our lives anything that is hindering us from putting our full faith, trust and surrender in Jesus. This is what this is to do for them. Put your hope in God. Don't put your hope in this world. Don't put your hope in the things that you see. Those things all fail, are unreliable. They disappoint. God doesn't ever disappoint. God doesn't fail. He has said he will save. Will you cleanse your heart? Will you remove the obstacles? Will you turn away from a life of sin and decide to follow the Lord Jesus with all of your heart? Will you decide that today is the day that I need to serve him and obey him and follow him because he's made a promise He will forgive my sins. He will take them all away. He will reconcile me to him. He will put me in a relationship with him. I will get to see the glory of the Lord. I will be with him eternally. He promised it. It must happen. But he's calling for people to turn away from this world 
and turn to him, to follow him with all of their heart. So I hope you will be cut to the heart and let Jesus lead you in the right paths to the eternal reward. Will you turn away from your sins this very evening as we sing this song in just a moment? The song is an invitation for you to decide tonight. Today is the day that I give my life completely to Jesus Christ and I will follow him, serve him and obey him. I see the hope that he has promised. This is the gospel news. The king has arrived. He is seated on the throne and he is calling people to follow him. And he bestows them with generous gifts of blessings, forgiveness, and grace. Decide today you want to do do that. Believe and confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Have your sins washed away this very evening so that you are no longer held in account of those things. Could there not be a more wonderful thing, a more gracious moment to have your sins taken away? All that you've done in the past, all taken away. Because God wants to save you from your sins. That's why he sent Jesus. Won't you come now and do that while we stand and while we sing.